Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. When he joined the New York Knicks, he turned the team from a contender into a championship winner. But it was what he did before he joined the Knicks that helped him become a Hall of Fame forward. And that included pitching for the Chicago White Sox and being named the youngest coach in NBA history before his trade to the Knicks. Next on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the remarkable and forgotten story of Dave DeBush. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. In just a moment, Bill Pruden, a member of Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, will be joining us to talk about one of the greatest New York Knicks ever, Dave DeBusher. Now, you might be asking why have a guest on the podcast who writes biographies about baseball players talk about a basketball player. Well, the answer is simple. Before DeBusher became such a great basketball player... In fact, he was named one of the 50 best in NBA history. He was a pitcher for the Chicago White Sox. Now, before we get to DeBusher and Bill Pruden, I just want to let you all know that this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible is a great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes and a terrific way to listen to your favorite books, especially when you're on the run. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. I have several audio books in my queue now, some of which I have listened to for Sports Forgotten Heroes. Check out Audible. It's really a great service, and some of the talent to read the books is really, really good. And it's free for 30 days. I also invite you to visit the Sports Forgotten Heroes Patreon page at patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash sportsfh. Every day there's a sports quiz, information on upcoming podcasts, historical notes about sports, the heroes we talk about, and there's a lot more coming too. It's also a great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes. Again, that's patreon.com backslash sportsfh. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at sportsfheroes and look for our page on Facebook or visit Sports Forgotten Heroes on the web at sportsfh.com. So how good a pitcher was Dave DeBusher? Well, the White Sox thought he was so good that they let future two-time Cy Young Award winner Denny McLean go in favor of keeping him. And Dave didn't disappoint. 
least on the minor league level, where he put up some hefty numbers going 43-25 and 25 over four seasons with a 3.43 ERA and 28 complete games. With the big club, however, DeBusher appeared in just 36 games over two seasons, starting 10 of them, and he went 3-4 and four with a 2.90 ERA. But the White Sox didn't keep him on the big club, and the Pistons liked him so much that after just two seasons with the team, and at the incredibly young age of 24, Detroit named him player coach. Now, that's a lot of pressure for someone so young, but what an incredible honor, and man, does that say a lot about your basketball acumen. And here to tell us more about Dave DeBusher is Bill Pruden. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. So tell me about uh, Sabre and your involvement and why you remember what you find so interesting about Sabre. Well, I'm a longtime baseball fan, and like so many people for organizations like this, a friend of mine made me aware of the organization. I looked into it, and um, I've um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, there's an awful lot of great information, a lot of sharing of, of great stuff, um, just interactions with lots of um, fellow baseball fans and um, that's also one of the things I like about it is it really approaches the game from a wide range of directions you know I think there's the you hear about it in the major league the sabermetrics kind of stuff but um, as my involvement's been more kind of historical um, narrative type stuff as opposed to statistical and, and saber supports that um, just as fully as they do the the number crunchers so tell me um, some of the uh, people who you have written bios about. Well, um, I actually started, I've only written four bios, but they've been sort of personal, I guess you'd say. Um, Dave DeBusher is one. Um, I grew up a big New York Knicks fan, knew he had played both baseball and um, and played for the Knicks and the NBA and thought, you know, looked into it and saw that was available and thought, all right, I'm going to jump on this one. The other one in the first sets that I did was actually based off of one of my um, great baseball memories. The second major league game I ever went to was the game that Roger Maris hit his 61st home run in. Wow, um, so that's awesome. I, I, grew, I grew up in northern New Jersey, and I constantly thought about this when McGuire and Sosa were chasing the records, and they were selling out every time. But I say the morning of the uh, final Yankee game that season, my father looked at the paper and <laughs> said to me and my younger brother, said, you know, we could see some history today. And literally drove across the bridge, which was all it took, as I say, grew up right out in Bergen County, right outside New York City, um, and were there when it when it happened. So um, when I found out about the Sabre bios, I checked into it, and nobody had, had written on Maris. So they, um, you know, assigned me that one, and that was the first one I did. And then I figured out. Wow, oh, that's really cool. Things. Really cool. That was. So I wrote on that one, and then I kind of. Figured I'd expand a little bit and then wrote on Tracy Stallard, who gave up Maris' 61st home run, <laughs> and Jack Fisher, who did the 60th. <laughs> so, and then I've actually written one article for the um, the games. You know, they're doing the history of um, sure. the game report. And I did that game was available. So I wrote on the, uh, the game in, that Maris hit the home run in. Well, you certainly have uh, a... Uh, my little niche. <laughs> yeah, you certainly have a uh, unique perspective on it, for sure. Hey, let's start here. First... Tell me about your love for Dave DeBusher and what listeners of Sports Forgotten Heroes might not understand is the love. And that's not a word to use loosely. That New York fans 
had a love for the Knicks of the 1970s and Dave DeBusher, a real love. Tell me about that. Oh, they really did. Um, it was, I think part of it was that City and a team that had been starved for basketball excellence for so long. Um, and I also think that while each of the members of that team had their own kind of fan base, I mean, it was an extraordinary team. Um, you know, Willis Reed at center, Walt Frazier and Dick Barnett on the first championship team at guards, the Busher and Bill Bradley at the forwards, um, and a bench that included Cassie Russell, Mike Reardon, Dave Stallworth, um, and then the second championship three years later that substituted Earl Monroe for Dick Barnett, who'd retired, and they added Jerry Lucas for additional depth. So, I mean, you know, each of them, it's a, a lot of Hall of Fame members, but there was a personality to it. Um, you know, I think Bradley had an image, obviously, that was very distinctive. Um, you know, Reed was just a warrior, and, and his seventh game appearance the year they won the first championship was, you know, one of the NBA's arguably all-time great member, moments. And um, the Busher was right in the middle, and I think, you know, by most basketball um, experts would say that he was kind of the missing piece. Um, the trade that brought him to the Knicks um, brought just a beyond-quality player, but also freed Reed up to move back to center from the forward he was playing. Um and uh, it just—it was the final, the final piece in, in a puzzle, um, and just added a added another dimension. I mean, it was a—you know—I think you'd be hard pressed to find a basketball team that had a higher basketball IQ you sure. know, in terms of that group. Um, and again, DeBusher, people tend to forget it, but you know, he was—he was not only a, a an all-star, um, but he was also a former coach. You know? Right, and, and we're, we're going to get to that. He it's, was a player coach for the Pistons. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get to that in a moment. What kind of player was he, though, and, and just how good was he? The Busher was just reflective of his, to a cliche, reflective of his upbringing. Um, he was a real, you know, Detroit native and was a real blue-collar guy. Um, you know, he was a good scorer. I mean, his career average, I think, was 16 points a game in a day when um, that was more than it is today kind of thing, but rebounding and the tough defensive assignments were the real core of, of what he did and the, the toughness that he brought to that, to that team. Um, and his own, again, his basketball, um, knowledge instincts and all were, um, just a, another in a piece of a very high, you, um, your, your piece on Dave really covered a lot and, I guess everyone knew that Dave was really something special all the way back in high school in Detroit, as you had talked about. He's from Detroit. He led his high school basketball team to championships, and he did the same with his high school baseball team as well. And then he did it again in college at the University of Detroit, where he led the Titans to NCAA and NIT appearances. He also led them to NCAA appearances on the diamond as well. Now, while some listeners might be familiar with just how good a basketball player he was, not many might realize just how good a pitcher he was. Tell me about Dave as a baseball player. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he's, he's, he, he had a solid record, um, but as we know in baseball, perhaps more than others, um, sometimes it takes time, and I don't know that he ever really got that. But, um, you know, had a solid record. Um, had some couple real good minor league years and got brought up near the end and did stuff. But, um, you know, the basketball infringed on a little bit there, you know, he had it written into his contract that he could do it. So there were times he'd get the spring training late if the basketball went long. And so he 
baseball never really got the full attention that it was probably necessary to fulfill it. But I know, um, you know, to my mind, and again, it's one of those kind of things that sports trivia experts absolutely love, but um, arguably the the best indicator of at least the potential that baseball people saw with Dave was the fact that at one point the White Sox had to make a decision um, based on yep. the rules at the time in terms of who could be sent down and, you know, how many mo- those kind of things. But they had to make a decision between two of their uh, roster pitchers to keep and, yep. you know, who they kept and who they were going to let go. And the guy they let go was Denny McClain. Incredible. <laughs> and um, I think that that says a lot. You know, obviously you don't know how it would have worked out, but they saw in the busher uh, enough to, to um, you know, make that decision. Well, obviously back then, baseball had had much deeper pockets than the NBA did. And when he graduated from college – he had a really difficult choice ahead of him. Does he sign with the White Sox who drafted him and offered him a hefty $75,000 signing bonus? Or does he sign with the Pistons who claimed him as a territorial pick for $15,000? So as you said, he, he did both, but the White Sox had to have seen a ton of potential in him to offer him such a signing bonus, did they not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I'm sure that's that's a a big piece. I mean, I, you know, I think he was obviously a tremendously talented athlete, and both sides were trying <laughs> to convince him to come to them. I mean, there's speculation that the reason he was named player coach for the Pistons was that all right, if he's got that responsibility, maybe he's finally going to give up this silly baseball thing, which is certainly on the Pistons. <laughs> saw it um but you know i think you've got a guy who was not only talented he was obviously a tremendous competitor and i think that was a part of it uh you know that, as you look back on it and it, you know who knows in retrospect it may have been part of why he, his heart gave out when he did that he's just given it his all and dying young but i mean i think this was a guy who was just had to compete and needed to do it almost 12 months a year kind of thing and um you know didn't didn't step away from that too, yeah the commitment the commi- yeah the commitment to both sports i mean especially today players keep themselves in shape all year around for their particular sport the commitment he must have had to have made back then to play baseball for x number of months a year and to play basketball for x number of months a year had to be huge, but he sure did give it a try. Yeah, Tell he me, did a try, and I think he, you know, and I think he was, you know, he was a tremendous competitor. I mean, his teammates all talked about that, and a, and a real leader in that way too. I mean, that example, and you know, it's not something you see today, even at lower levels. Um, to play at that level in the majors, so much of, and I, I say this as a father and as a high school educator, you know, the kids are specializing so early nowadays, and I, you know, we're not apt to see it the sure. picture again, not just because. Dave DeBusher was a unique person, but the the whole landscape of of sports um, has changed so much. Well, he sure did give it a try. Can you tell us a little bit about his career with the White Sox? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, he, he never had a never really had a full season. It was always kind of the the ups and downs. Um, his overall career was was a solid one. Um, you know, it was he had. So barely a hundred hours, but I mean a hundred innings pitched, three and four. His ERA though was under 
under three. So, I mean, it, there was always the indicators, um, but in part because of the, of um, basketball, he never really got the full thing. I mean, I, he never had a full-scale spring training because basketball over, always overlaps, so we were really kind of catching up. Um, and so we brought up late. Um, the NBA started uh, a little later in those days, so he was able to finish out some seasons, and that was where he got it. But it was it – was, you know, he was always kind of running from behind when the season started, then sent him down to – work on it and get things rolling in the minors. He has a couple of good, um, some real good minor league seasons. Um, right near the end, um, he had a triple A season with Indianapolis where he was 15 and 12 and an ERA of three, six, five, which was, um, nothing to sneeze at. And at that, at that time, um, and you know, and he, with his size too, he was, he was a real workhorse too, <laughs> in a way that we don't see in the same way nowadays. He was putting in a lot of innings. And- so he, he, he was doing pretty well with the Pistons at the same time. Um, right. And he had become somewhat frustrated with the White Sox because they wouldn't promote him to the majors. They right. kept him down in the minors. Yep. And didn't he think that he had done well enough to earn a spot with the team after spring training of 1964? Yeah, that's my understanding. You know, He reached the point where it's like, you know, give me the chance. I feel like I've earned it. And when that didn't come... It wasn't worth it to continue burning the candle at both ends if one of those was only going to yield the miners, I think was the the impression I have from what I've read and heard. Yeah, so the White Sox in 64, they send them down to get a little more seasoning. And then two things happen. To make room for him, as you had mentioned, the White Sox gave up on a guy who ultimately would win two Cy Young awards, Denny McLean, the last 30-game winner in the winner. In, in baseball. And in his time in the minors during that period, DeBusher goes 25-9 and for the White Sox AAA team in Indianapolis. So he's pitching well enough to prove that he yep. should he should be called up, but no matter what he did, it just wasn't enough. So how frustrated did he become, and how much did this frustration ultimately lead to his choice to abandon what might have been a pretty good baseball career? And I guess that goes to what was, I don't know if you know this or you can weigh it, did he have more love for one sport over the other? From the stuff I've read, I didn't get a sense of that. Um I, I, I think he really, uh, he was just such a competitor and loved, loved the sports, but I think that competitive aspect, like anything, you know, he, he felt like he'd done what needed to be done with, in the White Sox farm system with Indianapolis. And, you know, it's like, what, what, what are we waiting on here? I've, I've earned the spot. They didn't give it to him. And unlike, some other people, Denny McLean, for instance, who's you know kind of cut loose at least by the White Sox. Right, I mean, he right. had picked up by the Tigers. The Busher had an alternative. Sure. <laughs> and by that point, by that point, he had established himself in the NBA. So it wasn't like he was giving up the minor leagues in baseball for the end of the bench uh, in the NBA. Um, at that point, there, you know, the Pistons are talking about the coaching job. He had established himself as a as an all-star or at the early part, at least a near all-star. I mean, his rookie year, he makes the all-rookie team, um, starting to make the all-defensive team. So, I mean, he'd established himself as a very, very solid NBA player as opposed to still toiling in the minor leagues in baseball. 
Right. So so now before we get to what the Pistons did to really entice Dave to leave baseball and totally commit to basketball, which you have a you know hinted towards a couple of times, I want to talk, if you can, a little bit about the correlation between the two sports. We all know about Dion Sanders and his attempt to play baseball and football at the same time. And we all know about Bo Jackson, who just might have been the best two-sports star we've ever seen when he played for the Royals and the Raiders. But there are several who played basketball and baseball. Gene Conley, yeah, Gene Conley played for the Celtics, and I believe it was the Boston Braves. He's the only guy ever to win a championship ring in two different sports. Danny Ainge did it. He played for the Blue Jays and the Celtics. There was Ron Reed and Bob Gibson. I had no idea about Bob Gibson. You actually yep. told me that. Yep. So Bob tell Gibson me, played, uh, yeah. was a quality player, um, basketball player at Creighton University, um, was team NBA caliber. I think he was drafted, but I'm not 100% certain of that. But um, he actually, to pick up some extra money, played with the Harlem Globetrotters. Um, Wow. Which um, I've always found very funny because you know you're, any baseball fan has the image of the grimacing, yeah. you know, just beyond intense Gibson on the mound and the idea of him playing with the uh, the Globetrotters. And I've, I've read one place that he was actually he ruined with Meadowlark Lemon, which wow. adds a whole other dimension of hard to believe. Very cool. Yeah, that's so, that's a tough one to imagine. This guy who would. He was not afraid to knock you down, and then he goes out and he has no, fun no. on a basketball court with the Harlem Globetrotters. You talk about exactly. a conflict. Wow. Another one who played both sports um, was Chuck Connors, who later made a career in acting, um, but stayed involved with baseball enough, according to one thing I've read fairly recently, that he apparently was um, the go-between between the Dodgers and Koufax and Drysdale the year of the great holdout. How how difficult, uh, you know, sort of a rhetorical question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How difficult is it to play two sports at once? And I'm not sure, was it different back then as opposed to it is today? And, and why do you think there, and is there a correlation between basketball and baseball? Or is it just that, you know... One's sort of a summer sport and one's a winter sport. I would think it's more the summer than winter. I mean, and I say that as much as anything from just watching kids play in terms of the sequence. You know, they're playing off. I mean, you know, it's 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 not the norm anymore because kids do specialize so early. But for a long time, you had you know your good high school athletes were football, basketball, and baseball, and a real good baseball player. It was kind of extending through into the summer. Um, but I think. That's a piece of it. Football is obviously more of a of a physical grind. But I think another piece that we sometimes tend to forget is that um, for an athlete like that, an athlete in the Bushers era, Gene Conley, any of those guys we've talked about, um, Danny Ainge is just a little bit before it. Those were baseball players who were working in the off season. So basketball provided that work, and mm. it was also a way to stay in shape. You know, as opposed to the guy who was. Doing PR, you know, we hear it the, the old days, the, the guy who would, you know, work for a local car dealer or something because they weren't making, you know, that much money. I mean, you know, we, we all celebrated the recent World Series a couple generations ago. 
that win was as much about the World Series share for a player as <laughs> yeah. it was about any rings and publicity and the rest of it. Yeah, that's well, an interesting know, they point. Tell that old story. The Yankees used to talk about it, and you know, in the days of their dominance, any newcomer near the end of the year that got warned by the veterans, you know, don't screw up my playoff share, <laughs> kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that. That back then you would work during the off season, and if you're going to work dur- during the off season, why not do it playing a sport as opposed to selling a car or insurance or. Yeah. You know, chopping down trees, whatever it is. Interesting. Right. So the Pistons wanted Dave to commit to basketball and give up baseball. At I, first, he wouldn't do it, but then Detroit did something incredible. The yep. Busher, at the young age of 24, was named as the team's player coach. I mean, I can't even fathom being a player coach to begin with. And then you do it at the age of 24. Holy smokes. He's the youngest coach in the history of the NBA. It was quite a gamble. And it's a gamble that paid off for the Pistons. And even though Dave didn't meet with a lot of success as a coach, it still helped him become a Hall of Fame forward. Tell me about the move, how unusual it was, and and how it was the one move that convinced Dave DeBusher, to end his baseball career. Yeah, well, as you say, it's a tremendously unusual move on many levels. Uh, the player-coach aspect is beyond um, unusual, especially for basketball that moves so fast um, and, and has so many elements that, that come from the bench. Um, his age was just unfathomable in terms of, of having that responsibility. I mean, you know, we'll occasionally get a, a young uh, coach in another sport who has a couple veterans who are older than than he is. Um, occasionally it happens in the NFL. Occasionally it happens in Major League Baseball. But you know, to basically be not much older than the guys coming right out of college on an NBA team um, is is hard to fathom. Um, and just again, when you're also arguably your team's best player, to try to balance that, it's one thing. If you're in more of a supportive role and you're kind of doing the others, but they were nowhere without his play on the court, um, which made it that much more of a challenge. How did the other players react to that? The other players on the team, particularly the older players on the team, how did they react to the fact that this 24-year-old kid, who, as you just said, was probably the best player on the team, was named the player coach? How did that go over? From everything I've read, I don't think there was – the kind of resentment that there could have been um, in part because of the kind of guy and the kind of player that, that the Busher was, uh, he was such a, a leader by example. He was such a, a workhorse that there wasn't any resentment and that kind of thing. He, he, to the degree you can say they he, he'd earned it. He had, although I think it was realistically both a combination perhaps of a, of a publicity stunt in terms of the attention from the owner or, or the, the incentive to come on, you know, I'm giving you all this responsibility. Surely this is going to be your only sport um, type of thing. But um, I think the nature of, of how he interacted with his teammates at all levels made it something that could work in a way that it wouldn't in lots of situations where, you know, even today you get, you know, players who don't fit in with the rest of their team because they are right, <laughs> such a right. prima donna and, you know, nobody ever, ever accused the busher of, of that kind of, 
saying his um you know his loyalty to his teammates and I say just he was the embodiment of of leadership by example as well as substantive leadership he was not above uh you know at any point telling a teammate that they needed to be you know step it up kind of thing but um I think it was that you know the day to day stuff among your teammates was the bigger aspect of things especially stepping into that role but it also affected his play on the court did it not i mean here he yeah, had to dive did. in and look at the game a little bit different and he had to take on these other responsibilities as the coach how did that affect his game yeah it his, his numbers weren't as good um yeah, you know, he was distracted, arguably, in the sense that, um, or just that you just can't do it. You're, you you cannot, you can't play at that level and still be able to coach. You know, an assistant coach is going to help you notwithstanding. It's just, it's, it's, it's too much, especially, I think, I would argue in that game, arguably more than any other, just because of the major sports, just because of the speed. So it, it, it impacted things. And, it, and I think it, 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 it pulled at him. You know, he loved to play. He was a competitor. Um, and certainly coaches get that kind of thing. But, I mean, he was way too young to envision himself kind of sitting on the bench, <laughs> even to watch this, the rest of his team do it to analyze things. Um, he was a player. I also read where it was actually very difficult for him to make trades because there was only one player on the team that the other GMs actually found marketable. And it happened to be him. Tell me about that. That's got to be uh, that. That's pretty yeah, funny. Mean, it was hard. You know, it, it, it's it probably made it a little bit easier to coach because he was the centerpiece. But at the same time, um, you know, hard to build a team and, and can only be frustrating. I mean, he, he he understood the game of basketball way way too well to ever think, <coughs> excuse me, that he could do it all. So to not have the other players around him, I mean, I, you know, I think that was a. A piece of of it, I mean, you know. And he never ever said anything about how pleased he was to get traded to the Knicks when that happened, because he knew that he was finally getting the kind of support and being put in the kind of situation that he had always longed for, and could only see at a distance when he was with the Pistons. Right. So, so how did the trade to the Knicks come about? Um, the Knicks were the Knicks were struggling. Um, it was, um, you know, they had they gotten the pieces together um it was the team that finally won the championship had was comparatively young um they drafted willis reed a couple years before um drafted bradley and frazier bradley had to serve um well first after the original draft again as a territorial because the way the nba worked in those days he did his time in england as a Rhodes scholar and then in the interim they continued to be bad and got got walt frazier who was really kind of a little bit under the radar because he played for a small name school at Southern Illinois. Um, but so they were starting to put the pieces together, but they weren't quite fitting. And um, Reed had been a center at one point, and then Bellamy had come in and took over, and Reed was playing forward where he wasn't comfortable. And, you know, the the Pistons were, were flailing, and um, the Knicks inquired into into that, and um, they were willing to trade Bellamy, who at that point, you know, had been an all-star. I mean, at that point in time, he was usually considered among the, the top centers in the league, not the same level, obviously, as Russell and, and Chamberlain and all, but kind of in a second tier behind behind them and, you know, Nate Thurman and some of those other guys. But um, they were willing to get rid of him, allowed Reed to come back to center, and really provided a – it also that the other piece of the trade was Howard Comives, who was the starting guard, but um, it, it kind of freed up – it put – the ball in the hands of Frazier as the point guard and, um, and move Reed back to center. And it was just a, you know, that was a five, the, the 
to Busher and Bradley up front, Reed in the middle, and Frazier and, and Dick Barnett, who um, was a another savvy player, often uh, you know under underestimated, who they'd gotten a couple years before. He played out in the uh, when actually Gail Goodrich had kind of replaced him with the Lakers. He played next to Jerry West for a while, but um, so it was a, you know, a real combination of sharp guys um, who really knew basketball and. Um, and then they also made a coaching change at the same time as when Red Holtzman came in and replaced Dick McGuire. And I'm sure, and I'm sure Holtzman knew what he was doing when he wanted uh, uh, when he wanted yeah. the Busher. He he knew that that was the guy to yeah, the Busher was very much his kind of kind of guy, very much a you know a, an open man kind of thing in terms of looking for the offense and just a really tough. I mean, everybody said that Holtzman was a defensive coach. And he left the offense to the players. <laughs> All he kept telling them was, you know, find the open man. Um, but the and the busher fit that perfectly. It wasn't, you know, he didn't. He played defense all day long. Um, you give him the open shot, he'd he'd hit it. But he'd also spend as much time finding those other guys open. I mean, they were. So what's the Knicks in those days? Um, it was it was basketball as. I'm. I'll admit to being old fashioned. I think it should be played. I mean, it was a real team game. I, I sometimes, in my more cynical moments, see the modern NBA is five one-on-one games um, spread around kind of thing. Um, but there, uh, there was a tremendous amount of, of. It was a different game, and and some of it's the physicality. I mean, it was different ball game, but um, but it was really it was fun basketball to watch. So. He was really the missing piece, and the interesting thing about it to yeah. me is that he is the guy who actually turned the New York Knicks in from from a contender into a championship team. It was really yep. DeBusher because, as you said, the other players, particularly Willis Reed, was able to move back to center, and yet yeah. no, when he, you think of the Knicks the back team. then, yeah, and when you think of the Knicks from back then, people will automatically think of Willis Reed. Walt Frazier and Bill Bradley. Why not yep, Dave no DeBusher? Why not Dave no, DeBusher? It, it, it's an interesting question, and I, but I think I think it says a lot about DeBusher. Um, you know, Reed, Reed Reed had a great career, and obviously, as I say, that that seventh game um, coming in out of the tunnel um, was the you know, an epic and arguably the greatest single right. <laughs> uh, Memory in, in Nick history, um, in, in large part because of what happened to him, and then hitting the, the jumper to start the game, too, when he could barely get off the, the floor for the tap. Um, you know, it was huge, but I think um, Bradley obviously had all of the fanfare before he even got to the Knicks, and, and Frazier had a, a style that New York loved <laughs> and went sure, to town Clyde. with. Um, and the Busher, right, Clyde. And what I think, you know, but the Busher was the. The, the below the radar type that just but it didn't happen without him and he didn't care I mean it's it's really interesting to to see that um, he just he reveled in and part of it was probably after his years with the Pistons um, and, and even even his earlier career I mean, you know you cited earlier all of those various championships going back to high school that he had led um, and he was always the star always a a modest understated star but I think I think everything I've seen and the impression I have and the, the, the sense of camaraderie that I have always gotten a sense of at the time when you read it and the stuff that's come out ever since, um, of that Nick team, I think Dave DeBusher loved being a part of a team that was that good. Um, cause he had so seldom had that, that team aspect of things. Um, and he certainly hadn't had it in Detroit. 
Sure. Was was it was it DeBusher who played center for the Knicks when Reed went to the bench in Game Seven? Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, when they went to they went to that status, and he basically was uh, was covering Chamberlain as well as anybody could, and they kept rotating in. Uh, Dave Stallworth did a bunch, but he and Bradley were a little more wings. They played. Um, they did what kind of a almost a zone defense of a sort, um, and they moved to a zone offense in the, similarly too to try to keep on the wings away from Chamberlain in the middle. But but Busher was the one who was knocking bodies with with Wilt, <laughs> and that was no easy task. No, no, not at all. Reed could do better than any. <laughs> right. So he was a key ingredient to the Knicks, perhaps the key ingredient. We all remember Willis Reed and Walt Frazier and Bill Bradley, as I said earlier. But basketball purists, the guys who know the game, the guys who cover the game, knew about DeBusher, knew how key he was, knew how great he was, and ultimately he ended up in the Hall of Fame. How great an honor for him! Yeah, and he was on that. You know, the um, couple of years ago, or actually, no, it's more than a couple now. But when the NBA did its big 50th anniversary celebration and picked its 50 top all-time players, he was in that group too. And I think that also was a very fitting, uh, fitting recognition of of the kind of game he he played and the contributions he made too. <clears throat> why did he only play? Why did he only play 12 years? Best I can tell. He wore out. I mean, we think of it as twelve years, but if you, and it was it was an intense twelve, um, given the other stuff. But if you add those baseball seasons on top of it, um, it starts to push a considerably higher number of intense professional athletic seasons. Mm-hmm. And I think I, the impression I've had was that he was he was kind of he was feeling it. I, a part of me wonders too if. Because by the the last year that he played, the Knicks had started the downturn. Bradley retired. Reed's injuries had caught up to him, and a part of me can't help but wonder, as competitive as he was, and given the kind of roller coaster he'd been on, that had finished on a high note, that it was like I don't need to play out the string with some losing teams, kind of right. thing. Uh, I don't get any sense that anybody wanted to push him out. They they knew how, the value was still there. I mean, his final season was statistically one of his best. I think it was his second highest, <clears throat> excuse me, scoring seasons, and he was still right up to double figures, rebounds, kind of thing, which is always a hallmark. So um, it was just I think he had enough. He had three kids um, of an age where fathers, if they can, would like to be around him. Um, he wasn't done with basketball after he retired from the Knicks he goes on to the ABA the American Basketball Association and becomes general manager of the new team the New York Nets tell me about that Uh, well I think you know again I think he looked the way I understand he looked for some spots the Knicks didn't have anything Um, he was settled in the area so he didn't want to go outside again the family was an important part his his wife was his high school sweetheart and um, and so the idea of, of a, you know, he'd been, he was settled in, out in Long Island, um, and so staying in that area was important to him. And, um, you know, I think he probably felt, too, given his experience, that, that he had something to offer to a up-and-coming um, organization like that. Um, the Knicks were not real thrilled from all reports, because at that point we tend to forget it now since a lot of other teams moved into the NBA, but, you know, there was a war. 
right? the ABA and the NBA. And, and, and the NBA he played was not a, happy about it, and one of their he added a lot of credibility to that. Right, he played a key role in that because after being the GM yeah. of the Nets, he moved on to become the commissioner of the ABA, and exactly. I, and 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 he yep. was played a key role in the merger right. where the Nets, the Pacers, the Nuggets, and the Spurs all went from the ABA right. to the NBA. Tell me about that. Yeah, and I think that you know that, that was also, I think, reflective of, of his stature, that he had that with the NBA people. It was a symbol of, all right, if a guy like him is involved with the ABA, it can't be that horrible. He, could, you know, he knew those people. He could talk to those people. Um, but the, the, the loyalties, <clears throat> New York being what they are, there are more than a few people who speculate that the delay in retiring his jersey by the Knicks was in part a product of, his involvement with the enemy, so to speak. Interesting. But happily, the Knicks came to their uh, understood the the greater value. Yeah, it was there was sort of a cold period between DeBusher and and the Knicks, and that's because of his involvement with the Nets and the ABA. Right, and then of course, ironically, he does come back to the Knicks for one of the Knicks' greatest moments: the NBA yep. draft yep. lottery, the first ever yep. draft lottery, and I. I yeah. I could still see I that still, day. I can still. I remember watching it, and I can still see his face when he realized they had the first choice. <laughs> he looked as excited there as he had when they'd won the championship. Absolutely, and they go on to pick Patrick Ewing with that yep. pick. Tell us about Dave's days with the Knicks um, as an executive and the disappointment that he must have experienced over the fact that even with Patrick Ewing, the cornerstone to what he had hoped would be a new era of New York Knicks championship basketball, and they made the finals, but they could never get over the hump. Right. Yeah, no, I think it was, I think it was very, very frustrating, but... Um... Yeah, it was that, that element. I think if you really looked at those teams, um, and Patrick's an example um, of the reality that it does take a team. They had the they had the centerpiece, but they were never able to get those the full set of pieces in the way that the uh, the Knicks that the Busher had played on were able to. Um, you know, let's say it, it, it's it's that, that complementary stuff, and you know that's why I think. Um, the, the the Knicks of that era were really a, a special group. Um, you know, there was a lot of talent, but it really it was it was a talent that built off of each other. Um, you know, Dave DeBusher had been a great Piston, but it was he was an even better Nick because they played off those things. Um, you know, Bradley's was a guy who played best within a a system like that. Um, you know, Reed was a, a very effective center for that kind of a team too. It just it was a centerpiece on that, and the guards, Frazier, you know, was a great point guard. Did what he did, but he also, you know, there, there was, he he people tend to forget as good as he was. But you know, defense was a centerpiece of his stuff, and that really played to his strengths. And he did what he needed to do on offense too. But it was just it was a. And then you get to you know the, the other people who bought into that. I mean, some, when Earl Monroe came for and was on the second championship team, a guy nearing the end of his career who'd always struggled that same way and finally he had a chance to be a piece of a winner and you know in a one-on-one situation he was still Earl the Pearl but he didn't have to carry that team and made great contributions but was not the same player either visually or statistically that he'd been when the with the then bullets because he had to be right I can't help but get this overwhelming feeling that 
Dave's final days with the Knicks were, and his final days in basketball were somewhat sad, and he just sort of like disappeared, and and you know he went away. What were those final days like? And then ultimately he's out jogging and passes away. Uh, uh, I mean, tell me about those final days with the Knicks and what happened and and how he passed. Yeah, I think um, you know the way I'm understanding it, it was one of those the realities of the business side of the pros. Um, he'd gotten the Ewing pick, um, had worked to put people around him, but when it didn't come to fruition, it was notwithstanding his history with the team, there was the proverbial, what have you done for me lately? And, um, you know, they, um, he was fired as general manager, um, went to, uh, you know, worked for local uh, corporation, kind of vice president, corporate development, you know, essentially PR, um, the kind of thing that more than a few athletes over time with their connections. And again, that, you know, Dave was a, at that point in time, Dave DeBusher was, and within corporate circles for sure, a, you know, a, a New York icon. Um, you had the generation of those corporate leaders who remembered those Nick teams and, and, um, you know, hoped he could, you know, serve in that, in that capacity. He was loved by New York and he was definitely loved by his teammates. In fact, his former teammate and, Former senator of New Jersey gave the eulogy at Dave's funeral, Bill Bradley, right. and he said this. Yeah. And a, a funeral that Bradley organized um, because he, um, you know, as soon as he heard about it, he went to, to Busher's wife and she said, no, Dave didn't want anything. And and Bradley was like, no, Dave deserves something and we're going to do it. Wow. Well, <laughs> he, put it, he put it together according to Harvey Erickson's book, uh, and which rings true given that they were longtime roommates and uh, – but, and it reached a number of levels because that sounds like the Busher too in terms of, you know, it doesn't matter kind of thing. But as I say, um, I think it was reflective of of Bradley's um, feeling and the whole, you know, everybody was there. And when Bradley gave the eulogy and it was, a, you know, it was a, a very much of a, a moment that symbolized that um, that team in that era. And what he said, one of the things that Bradley said was, I think the fans loved Dave because they sensed what his teammates already knew. He was the real thing. No pretense. He hated phonies. No guile. He told you exactly how he felt. No greediness. I never heard him talk about points. No excuses. He always took responsibility for his mistakes. That says a lot about what kind of person Dave DeBusher was. What should we remember about Dave DeBusher? And again, I ask, why do you think, particularly outside of New York, he doesn't get the notoriety he should? Well, I think it was, in many respects, all of those kinds of things. I think we tend now to focus on the glitz and the numbers. And, um, you know, in the end... What Dave DeBusher was, both in terms of his dealings with people and on the basketball court, was he was a winner um, in the best of that way. And it was, you know, not accumulating rings, but I think, and he made, I think, equally important, um, he made everybody better. Um, it was certainly true on, on those, as, on those Nick teams as far as his teammates went, but I think, and I think Bradley's comment says it, I made them better as people, too. You know, reminding them that it's not about the point, it's about what we are all doing as a joint venture. And I don't think that's any small thing, um, but something that is oftentimes uh, lost. 
Wow, that's awesome. Hey, Bill, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes, and I hope you'd uh, consider coming back again sometime. I would love to. I really uh, enjoyed this, um, and, um, you know, this was a topic that uh, really uh, means a lot to me, but I, um, I really enjoyed the opportunity. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. The reason I chose to do a podcast about Dave DeBusher is this. In New York, he's basically a legend. Outside of the Big Apple, however, very few people remember him. And the fact that he played for the Pistons and was the team's player coach at the ripe young age of 24 is something very few people remember. In fact, I have a very good friend who lived in Detroit, grew up a Pistons fan, and had no idea that DeBusher was the team's player coach. And add to the fact that he was a two-sport star, having pitched for the Chicago White Sox, is even more remarkable. As we talked about earlier, the White Sox never really gave DeBusher an opportunity to shine at the major league level. He only played parts of two seasons with the team and, obviously, we'll never know how good he could have been. On the hardwood, however, it's a completely different story. DeBusher was named one of the NBA's 50 greatest players. He was elected into the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame in 1983. He played seven seasons with Detroit and six with New York. For his career, he averaged 16.1 points per game and 11 rebounds per game. He played in eight NBA All-Star games, and he won an NBA championship with the Knicks. Later, he became the commissioner of the ABA and helped engineer the merger where the New York Nets, Indiana Pacers, Denver Nuggets, and San Antonio Spurs all joined the NBA. As the Pistons player coach, DeBusher didn't fare too well going 79 and 143 in his three years. But at the age of 24, what should you expect? He was playing and coaching. Just remarkable. He's the only player in the history of the game to be named player coach and then traded. Again, a remarkable, remarkable career. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to stay in New York and at Madison Square Garden to talk about one of the key members to one of the greatest periods in the history of the New York Rangers, the early 1970s, Vic Hadfield. Thanks again to today's guest, Bill Pruden, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.